This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. of news I'm not 100% that this is true crime news in fact like a lot of what's being put out about it sort of points a different direction Uh, you can find this in the sun and in people Um, it's definitely tragedy and I'll tell you what when I look at stuff like this I always wonder like what is it that they're investigating because there's certainly an investigation attached to this uh, the and you sent me this. Uh, the article that you sent me came from people. Looks like it was from September fifth by a guy named David Chu, and uh, the title of the article is Four-year-old twins die after toy chest lid shut on them while they were sleeping." It's a pretty simple article. It says a Florida family is mourning the loss of four-year-old twins who died after being found inside a toy chest at home. Authorities found the two children unresponsive at a Jacksonville home on August 25th. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office told people in a statement that despite attempts to revive them, they were pronounced deceased. But then the Sheriff's Office said that the investigation is still in a very early stage. And the information they have is that both children were playing in the home. And when they were checked on, both were found unresponsive. Somewhere else I found that like their older brother found them. Right. And they said that the sheriff's department, our law enforcement, they said that they don't know if it was an accident or if foul play is involved. But as of, I believe yesterday, no charges had been filed. Yeah. And so the mom took to Facebook and she said that it was a tragedy that happened after the children had been put to bed by their father. And then dad went to bed. And then when she got home from work a couple of hours later and looked in on them. They were sleeping in their beds like normal. Yeah, so she just ate her dinner and went to sleep. And at some point early that morning, the twins had woken each other up, and they decided they wanted to play in the room rather than go back to sleep. She Which said they is didn't... pretty common for them. Yeah, yeah. I so I I bring this up. I don't think it's necessarily going to be true crime related. But you know, may as well throw a PSA out there to keep an eye on on your kid. One thing that stood out to me about this this story was what I interpreted to have happened was that the girls got into their toy chest, and it's a solid wood chest, and they use it to store their stuffed animals. But from what I could see, they had gotten all their stuffed animals out of there, and then they closed the chest. Now, they were not locked in the chest. They were not stuck in the chest, They were laying together in the chest, snuggling, according to things I've read, and they ran out of oxygen. Solid wood chest, I guess, can be airtight, okay? It makes sense, right, as opposed to, like, something plastic or whatever. It it was a cedar chest, I believe, is what I read. And the parents nor the children had any idea that there was, like, this death trap, And so that's sort of why I'm 
you know, I feel like it's worth saying something about it in our true crime news, even though, you know, it's not necessarily a true crime in that there probably wasn't any foul play involved here. But these girls like slowly ran out of oxygen to the point where they suffocated, right? And they probably never even knew what hit them. Now, I find that a little bit odd because it seems like, you know, they'd wake up and be like, I can't breathe. Open the chest, right? Um, But, I mean, I think it's possible tired little kids could sleep through that, I guess. Well, they're four years old. So, in my mind, I think, I don't know. I think that they would be big enough to push it. I I have one of those cedar chests. They were not trapped in the chest. That's what is important to realize. That's why it's so horrifying. They were... So they're in the chest. They could get out if they realized they needed to get out. Exactly. Man. But and they, they have, didn't because oh. they didn't realize they were in any danger. Right. So to me, it's this whole new level of like, as far as like, now I could be wrong. This is just what I've read and interpreted from what's been provided, right? And so the girls got up, they played, they were probably, um, you know, I know a lot of little kids who like to get in little small confined spaces, especially with their best friend, right? Yeah. And they like to do whatever, you know, read or talk or make up stories or play pretend or whatever. And, you know, these little girls, now the mom said that uh, the, the lid probably accidentally shut Right. Um, but I, I have no idea. I would say that they could have just as well shut it themselves. Um, a couple of things that I was thinking of, which, because I have one of these cedar chests as well, and I never thought about it being airtight ever. It's never occurred to me. You know, there should be like, if you have one, you need to take steps to make sure like it can't close airtight, which would just be like, you know, as simple as putting something on it that held it slightly open, right? Yeah, a little stopper um, on the hinge or yeah, something. Yeah, or something like that. But, you know, they, they've lost their twin four-year-old girls for absolutely nothing. They were just playing and completely unaware of the danger that they were in. And I almost want something to come out like, you know, something that would make this less of a tragedy somehow. I mean, it would still be a tragedy no matter what, but like they were just playing and they shut the lid. Yeah. I don't think there's anything that could essentially make this all okay. It's, it's, it's absolutely devastating when something like this happens. And so these are, this is a family with mom, dad, and four kids. The youngest two kids are the twins. And then they have two older brothers. So two little girls and then two older brothers this is, you know, it it comes up, and this is an odd correlation, but in the last episode, we were talking about someone who stuffed people into, like, to hide the body in odd places. And one of those places was a steamer trunk in an attic. But this right. is in a playroom or in the little No, it's in their bedroom. bedroom. Their bedroom, yeah. Yeah, they were just playing in their bedroom. but um, And that's the case that on the previous episode – there was a coroner's jury brought together to do an inquest and it was a split on whether she had been murdered or it was suicide. Right. Right. Um, and she was found in the steamer chest by her son. Now, when they say steamer chest, is that because it's what you take on like a steamer railroad trip? 
Yeah, like they, they have different names, steamer trunk, steamer chest. Um, this is like a cedar toy chest that we're talking about in this particular article. Right. Uh, the, the old steamer trunks were more like a the size of like a, a footlocker. The idea was they were designed of a, a type of height and width that they would slide under the... In a, if you're on a train or if you're on like a, a, a big boat liner, they slide underneath the chair or they would slide in sort of the, the corners under the little tables. They would fit right in a particular um, place. Place, Yeah. That's why they call them steamer trunks is and that's different than the cedar trunk. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's still an enclosed space. Now, you know, these two little girls that were playing and got in their cedar trunk and closed the lid or the lid closed on them and they ran out of oxygen. I feel like you said it's sort of like a public service announcement because nothing like this would ever occur to me that it might happen. And there's things out there like that, right? And this, and I always try to draw attention to them whenever they happen to come up because it is something I never would have thought about. But, you know, the parents in this situation, they didn't do anything wrong. No, it doesn't appear that they did. I mean, like I said, there's still an investigation going on, which I feel like puts it over into the realm of being potentially criminal in the fact that there was an investigation. I don't think the outcome is going to be something criminal happened. I I don't either. Um, I actually feel like uh, anything that would lead to a criminal ending would be very obvious at the point that they were found, right? You can't hold four-year-olds against their will in a, a toy chest, a wooden toy chest, without it looking like you've been holding them against their will in a toy chest, right? Yeah, like four-year-olds, there would be pretty clear signs that they had tried to get out on their own and couldn't. If, even if it had just been weighted down or blocked from opening or something, you would be right. And so that's the thing, I guess, that is the biggest sort of like, what to me is the fact that like they were in the chest, the chest was closed and they were sleeping and they ran out of oxygen. If at any point in time they had opened the lid, which they were not, as far as I can tell, I've looked very carefully and it does not say they were locked in, but a little mech, a little spring mechanism would have kept it from closing all the way. Right. Without. Yeah. Uh, specifically making it close, uh, which, of course, they would have figured out how to do anyway. But they were just, you know, playing. And that is the part that truly horrifies me is the fact that, like, they didn't lock them. Like, you know, do you remember the cases? um, I think we talked about one last Halloween where um, a babysitter had put a little girl in a refrigerator. Yep, a twin. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, that's... A situation where, as far as I know, when you're in a refrigerator, you can't really get out from the inside, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, actually, and I don't suggest anybody try it. But So this is not that situation. This is a situation where these girls got in and they shut the thing and they could have absolutely gotten out, but they didn't see why they should get out because they're playing. And that's what makes it like something I'm bringing up today is because, you know, I guess – and, I, and how do you balance that, right? How do you balance your child's imagination playing with their twin and their best friend 
and, and saying like, you know, you know, don't shut the lid and go to sleep. I mean, even saying it, it's like, why would you have to do that? Right. I, I had a family friend who made one of these for my kid and he had specifically made it. So the hinge had two levels to it. Right. So it has to be consciously closed. Yeah. You have to like almost push a little tab. That's not exactly what you're doing, but to close it. But at the same time, I had a footlocker. I don't have it anymore, but I had a footlocker that had an interest and it was about the same size as um, what they're describing here. When I sometimes closed that footlocker, the, uh, it had like a, I don't know what you call them, like a clasp that you could put yeah. over a, a hook and you could put a lock in it. Right. Like, like a, a real, latch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It had a latch. Sometimes. And it could get caught. Yeah. Sometimes when you close the lid, the latch would flip down. And right. I know exactly it, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And like, I never thought about that from the perspective, like by the time I had kids and stuff, I no longer had that particular thing. Um, but if you were to climb in there together, potentially I think two small kids and it coming down on them, that latch could flip forward and it, it wouldn't be like they were being held in there. It would just, the latch would make it very difficult to reopen. Right. And um, I guess that that is, and as, as far as I know, that is not what happened in this case. It It's just nobody had any idea that it would be a situation where being in there like that, uh, they would suffocate and run out of oxygen. Um, but you know, solid wood, not permeable. It, um, it has no ventilation that I'm aware of, which actually they're built specifically not to have ventilation because cedar chests are, you know, to keep moths off closed. Right. Totally. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, they were using a chest and the chests are, I mean, I've seen cedar chests. They're very nice and uh, it smells good in there too. (laughs) Um, But these little girls were just playing and their parents, from what I can see, I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. And I don't know, I sort of, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got almost a grown child, but I remember being a child and like sort of my mom, kind of pushing me to be like, you know, more responsible than putting myself in a confined space. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. When I was little, I, I did odd things where I would, um, I remember growing up, there was a lot like a linen closet and it had a space at the bottom that was usually pretty empty. And I would, I don't even know why, but when I was six or seven years old, I would crawl in there. And, and it was so comfortable to sleep in there. I could not tell well, you why I did it. Well, right. And, but, and I'm familiar with the fact that I, I don't know why, but sometimes little kids, especially with a friend, right, when they're not alone, like they will end up in the craziest places without any, you know, knowledge of what's happening. And except for the fact that I wonder why they didn't wake up when they were suffocating, right? Slowly suffocating. Maybe it was so slow, right? I I find that a little bit odd, but again, I'm not saying that that means there was foul play involved. They could have just been super tired, right? Well, Um, you mentioned the other 
case, which I, and I don't remember all of, I would have to like look at that again, but that's the Jackie Robidoux case where the, the twins that were involved were Mary and Augustine. And then we have Nima Louise Carter. Those came up in previous episodes where we were talking about that. I don't think this is like that. No, yeah, um, that that's why it was. I didn't. Re- I forgot that it was twins. That's why it stuck out in my head. It's got to be. Well, and that's something. I, I don't know. I think that we've was from Halloween last year. Yeah, but didn't it happen around Halloween? It is probably from those episodes. I I don't remember like the dates. I think it was around Halloween, and that's why I had moved it into that like time period. Right, mm-hmm. and that woman had a lot of tragedy in her life even after that. Um, but yeah, it probably did stand out because of the twins. And I don't know that people know this. I can't remember if I've ever said it. My wife is a twin and you grew up with a pair of twins and then we knew a pair of twins. And then I have a close friend who is a fraternal twin. So we have a lot of twins in our world. I think friends, I I think twins are like, I think a lot of people have twins in their lives. Well, what I was going to say was that's the one thing that made me go, wait, what? Because it's like um, bad enough that it could have been one child, but it was two. That's the hard part for me. And I say that because I've seen tons of home movies and pictures and interacted with two tiny twin girls. Like they're tiny as adults. But I, I say it from the perspective that if they were doing, and I could totally see them doing something like this when they were four years old. Right. Together. Together. But, but the thing is, one of them would be like, hey, what's happening? If there's not a situation where like a latch is in the way or something, one of those girls I, in my twin world would have woken up and been like, well, hey, what's going on? I see what you're saying. And I agree. I, But all they would have had to do was open the lid from what that's I can what I, see. That's what I mean. Like, it, like one of them would have stood up or something, but that doesn't make it less tragic. I'm just explaining my connection sure. to this Sure. And I understand that. And so also I would say that it is, it's twice as tragic that it happened to twins, but also uh, children on their own and, you know, twins are different than siblings, right? In yes. lots of ways, but um, you know, they. You're talking they about from do, the bonding perspective, right? Yeah. Because like twins, you know, uh, like the mom was saying, they would get up and like one of them would wake the other one up and they'd play because like there's nothing wrong, you know. But, you know, having if you have an only child or a child who has siblings that aren't their age, like they're not going to get in a box in the middle of the night alone. I would tend to agree that I will say that particularly the closest twins in my, my life are far more adventurous people even now, 40 some years later than most siblings and most individuals I know. Well, especially when they constantly have each other, right? Yeah, you always have someone to get on an adventure or into trouble. Right, and so um, that is part of, like, the story that just is, I mean, because they lost both of them. They both uh, died tragic deaths. I hope, I really hope, and it seems sort of like this is probably the case, but I hope they just went to sleep. Right, because they said they found them like cuddled up together, yeah. and like yeah, that, they, there was they no. Said they looked like of, they always did. Yeah. They, there was no signs of distress or struggle. It was like they had just, you know, snuggled and fallen asleep. And I hope that that's what happened. It is just like so incredibly tragic. 
It is tragic. And, the, uh, you know, I do find a little bit of comfort in the fact that they went together if they had to go. That's There's something to be said for that. But that still feels a little terrible. So, I, you know, I, I don't think this is going to be any kind of Jackie Robito situation. And I don't think it's going to be anything like what Earl Nelson did with people and trunks or uh, boxes. I just I hope that family is OK, because I know how terrible it can be when you lose a kid, let alone two. Right. Yeah, it is a really awful story. And you just got to, like, it's almost like you've got to think through every single thing, right? Like nothing airtight for kids in their rooms. Yeah, my my mom was a very paranoid person. And um, everything growing up was helmets and seatbelts. Like everybody else was getting into whatever they wanted to do. And I, I just sort of grew up in that world where, for lack of a better word, she was a worry wart. And she was always concerned, and I think some of that rubbed off on me, particularly with my my own situation with family later. Sure, right, and it, this is not something I feel like uh, could have been foreseen, though, really. And except no. now, now that it's happened, it could be foreseen, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of unforeseen things, you want to segue into where we left off with Mr. Earl Nelson? Sure. You would think that what he did in December 1926, yeah, the the end of that spree would be enough because he had been going for months, but apparently he just needed a break or potentially has committed other crimes that haven't been found out. He does end up laying low for a while. And where we uh, left off, his body count, depending on if you count attempted victims and, and what he was doing, was somewhere around 17 at the end of December 1926. But one of those was an infant child. So that takes it down to 16 women. And then one of the victims that he had attacked, she survived. So that takes it down to around 15 or so. And I hate to speak in these generalities, but this, uh, as previously mentioned, this took place 97 years ago. He had been moving east. So starting out in Portland, California, and Seattle, Washington, he had moved east at the very end of 1926. We don't actually hear anything about him again until April of 1927. And these are the the crimes that they attribute to him. I will say that uh, at the end of this, we'll talk about a couple of suspected victims. They don't fall in this time frame. In terms of tracking this guy down, he just sort of vanishes from the end of December until April. And he shows back up with an agenda again. So where he pops up next is uh, April 27th of 1927. He appears to have murdered and raped a 53-year-old landlord named Mary McConnell in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Several articles of jewelry were taken from Mary McConnell's house. And the following day, on April 28th, Earl pops up trying to sell a gold watch to a woman named Marie Kuhn, K-U-H-N, who ran a pawn shop. Uh, this is according to Harold Schechter's book, by the way. But uh, Marie says, no, 
because he couldn't account for the origins of this watch. About a month later, on May the 27th, Earl pops up in Buffalo, New York, and he rents a room from a 53-year-old woman there named Jenny Randolph. But at this point in time, he's been using the name Charles Harrison. Three days after he rents the room and leaves, Jenny Randolph is found strangled and raped. And her body is under a bed in her house. Now, Jenny's brother, Gideon Gillette, had met a man named Mr. Harrison when he first arrived at the residence. He described him as about 33 years old with a stocky build, a dark complexion, with black hair that was slicked or greased straight back. What's different about this situation is another boarder in Jenny Randolph's house, a guy named Fred Merritt, had seen uh, Earl masquerading as Charles Harrison, and he was able to positively identify him. On June the 1st, so just a few days later, two women are found in a boarding house in Detroit, Michigan. One of them named Fannie Mae, who is the manager of this house, but not the owner, along with a boarder named Maureen Atherthy. They've been murdered. In fact, the, the owner of the house, Leonard Sink, he arrived to collect the rent funds from May on June the 1st and discovered their bodies. Now, Fannie Mae had been strangled to death with an electrical cord that was taken from a table lamp in the house. Police later determined that the cord had been cut while it was still plugged in. And I don't know what plugged in looked like in 1927, but I'm imagining to myself, that it was probably a little different than today in terms of like electrical supply. So police had the idea that the knife, which had been, which would have been used to cut this electrical cord off the table lamp would show visible marks where it had gone through uh, this, this cord. And those marks would be like burn marks and they believed that it would have damaged the blade of the knife to cut through the wiring. So from Detroit on June the 1st, we moved to June the 3rd in Chicago, Illinois. And Earl murdered 27-year-old Mary Sietzma there. She was discovered by her husband on the floor of their home, and she had also been strangled with an appliance cord. Several articles of men's clothing had been stolen from this house. Now that's according to uh, the city of Winnipeg's historical stories, uh, an article from April, 2018, where the police service up there wrote uh, a blurb called the strangler, specifically a guy named John Burchill wrote it. Now that goes to what you were talking about, where you had mentioned that he was taking clothing from different places. Correct. Mm -hmm. Now, does uh, this also go, from what you've read, does this go to his, like, kind of 
disguise or uniform? Well, when he has the opportunity, uh, and I don't think that, I think it's just like if the opportunity presents itself after he's already committed the crime, right? So it it doesn't factor into it. But if, you know, the person that he has killed has a closet of men's clothes, he tends to take uh, something for himself to wear. Sometimes I think he's traded it at, uh, consignment type stores and you know he'll take whatever value he can find including any sort of cash money that he comes across but like I said it doesn't seem to be like part of the deal like in choosing whomever his next victim is going to be it's just if they happen to have uh, men's clothes he will take an outfit because he also and then he also gets a so at a different so this is weird because I don't know what part of the cycle it would be in, but so he'll have a new outfit and he he will be sh- sh- fresh shaven and a haircut. Okay. Okay, so he looks more clean cut, basically. Because you know, like actually, I don't even know in 1920s, but like I assume because he, he would go to like a barber, right? Okay. Shave and a haircut, right? And so he looks like a completely different person than he's going to look in like ten days. Gotcha. Right, like based on the fact that like he hasn't shaved and he hasn't had a haircut and his clothes are still the same clothes he's been wearing the whole time and they're dirty, right? I don't know if you noticed this or not, but it, it really bothers me because I there's so little information really about this case and, you know, there's not uh, any way of deriving any sort of DNA evidence at this point in time. Like you said, it's we're talking about, you know, 97 years ago. Have you noticed the age difference in some of the um, victims? Yeah, that's that's one of the next things that I was going to point okay. out, particularly as we like kind of wind this up. It It's interesting to me that, so first of all, skipping through the list, I had to go back and kind of double source some of this. I say that because, the victims in California, like he was hitting the same age over and over again, like 60, 63, 63, 63. And then it would suddenly be 53, 52, and it would drop down some. Now, we do have some evidence of him attacking younger people. So with Bina Withers, she was 35. Mabel Fluke, they did not list an age for her anywhere. And then the young lady that he attacked in Burlingame, California, who had the house for sale. Now, he's pretty well accounted for there from the perspective of there was a witness during that time. So he they knew that M.O. held true for him to show up like when a house was being sold. Well, right. Well, and she's fact- 28 years old. Well, right. And the fact that she survived also makes it an outlier, right? If you're looking at statistically. Yes, absolutely. And so it's weird that she would be both an outlier. And so up to that point, right, you're going to be in the 60s. We've got the 35-year-old whose death was actually split on homicide, suicide, right? Yeah. And then you've got, uh, so it's 60, 63, 63, 53, 52, 35, 59, uh, unknown, 56, and then 28, right? Correct. And so that would, that makes her a stark outlier if that's what you're looking at uh, as far as, okay, well then she survives, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that's the case here, but in my mind, I would immediately, I immediately go, wait a second, 
two outliers? Well, it's about to get even weirder. Because, so after he steals from Mary Sietzma, whose husband discovers her strangled on June the 3rd, who's 27 years old, and she's in Chicago, Illinois, he's making a huge leap here. He's leaving the country. And one of the sources for the next part of this is a, the article by John Birchall. The place that you can find this online is weird. Uh, John Birchall was a detective sergeant with the Winnipeg Police and they currently have it. The only place you can get it is under the Winnipeg Police Museum.ca. And it's got a breakdown of some of what we just talked about. It's got a lot of good pictures in there. He actually has like some of the police record. And he sort of takes us through the whole story. Now, what's interesting about this case, and I'm picking it up with June second or third, depending on how you follow along here. Some of the newspaper articles appear to be from June the 3rd, but they reference it being June 2nd. Uh, And I'm talking about Mary's murder here at the end of his time in the United States, Uh, the Chicago murder. It gets interesting here because if you pick up with what John Burchill was writing, somehow in six days in his blue suit, his patterned sweater, and his brown flip-flops that he stole from Martin Sietzma in Chicago. He hitchhikes and steals money from different people along the way. And by June the 8th, he is in Winnipeg, Manitoba. That is fascinating to me because international travel today is a pretty easy thing to imagine. But you have to think about the time frame here. 1927, you don't have airplanes yet. There's a lot of ways that you can get different places in terms of trains, boats, vehicles would have been a thing at this point in time. But the way that he gets over is pretty interesting. On June the 8th, 1927, Mr. W.E. Chandler, who is from Manitoba, he's heading home into Winnipeg from Detroit. And about a mile north of Luna, Michigan, Chandler sees a man walking along the highway and he stops and he asks if he can offer him a ride. So he takes this gentleman that he's picked up as far as Noyes, Minnesota, which is a small town that's about a mile south of the international border in Emerson. The man walks to the border and he gets picked up by Mr. and Mrs. Hannah of Winnipeg, Manitoba, just north of Emerson. They take him into Winnipeg and they let him off at a streetcar stop on the corner of Corridon and Osborne. From there, it's believed that this man walks along Osborne Street down Broadway Avenue and about 5 o'clock p.m., He goes into a secondhand store owned by Jacob Garber at 218 Main Street, and he trades in Martin Sietzma's blue suit, his patterned sweater, and his brown sandals. And he gets a blue herringbone coat, a pair of nice slacks, a pair of black boots, uh, a gray felt hat, and Jacob Garber gives him a dollar for the difference in the two. So when he does that, as simple as that sounds, he has completely reinvented himself and the last thing he was seen in. And and not only that, 
he's no longer in the United States. Right. And so he's a completely different person. He is. But unfortunately, this iteration doesn't last very long. I will say that, like, time-wise, Earl has – and the man that I'm talking about here is, is Earl Nelson. He has hit the end of his luck, I guess. I don't know that unfortunately is the best way to put that, but I feel Fortunately, like everybody understands what you're saying, right? Yeah. Well, then we'll say it the, the right way. Fortunately for future victims, Earl is coming to the end of his spree. Now, he makes his way back down Broadway from Jacob Garber's shop on Main Street, and he goes over to Smith Street, and he notices that in the window of Catherine Hill's home on Smith Street, there's a room for rent sign. He knocks on the door. He introduces himself as Mr. Woodcotts, remarking that he's a religious man. And Mrs. Hill, believing that Earl is a decent dude, she rents him a small bedroom on the southwest corner of the second floor of her home. Earl gives Mrs. Hill the dollar that he had gotten from Jacob Garber for the exchange of clothing as a payment for his $12 a month rent. That evening, a 14-year-old schoolgirl named Lola, either Gowan or Cowan, I've seen it with a G and I've seen it with a C, who lives on 3 University Avenue, she's walking along Broadway and then down to Smith Street, and she is selling artificial flowers that her sister Margaret makes. The Cowan home is on University Avenue, but it faces the Vaughn Street gal. And Lola's father has been sick. He had appendicitis. So the different family members are doing whatever they can do to make a little extra money. And the idea was that Lola would sell these little flowers that Margaret was making to the residents in nearby homes as soon as she gets out of school. At about 10 p.m., she goes to 133 Smith Street, which is where Earl happens to be renting from Catherine Hill. Earl is standing on the front steps, and none of the other tenants are around. And Earl tells Lola that he doesn't have any money on him. He says that Lola can come up to his room and he'll buy some of the flowers and she like he'll give her the money. He takes her up the steps to the second floor. He opens the door to his room and he sort of indicates that she should go in. And while her back is turned, Earl hits Lola over the head to knock her out. And then he wraps a cloth around her neck and he strangles her to death. Then he takes off all of her clothing and he repeatedly rapes her corpse. And when he's done, he stuffs her under the bed and he goes to sleep. That is one of the most disturbing things I've read in all of this. And I think it's indicative of what he was doing all along. But what's the big difference here? She's 14. Yes, he's 14 and she came to him. It it, so this would more than likely be it was just a crime of opportunity, right? Yeah, he's debating in his head. I think he's probably been seen by too many people. So he can't do anything to Catherine Hill, who, who, who 
is renting rooms in this house. Right, which, again, uh, this would be an interesting distinction to have been made. Like, um, you know, was it that he had been seen by too many people? What kept Catherine Hill from being his next victim as far as that goes, right? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you we get a little bit of an indicator. Because all this takes place on Wednesday, June 8th, 1927. Uh, Thursday, June 9th, 1927. And now we get into Friday, June 10th. So when he wakes up, it's Friday, June 10th. Earl gets out of bed. He packs up what Lola had with her into a piece of luggage. And he takes off and leaves Catherine Hill's house. He heads down Portage Avenue over to Main Street, which is where he was before. And he works his way to St. Boniface. And there he spots a room for rent sign. It's hanging in the window of 100 Riverton Avenue. In this home are a couple named William and Emily Patterson, who lived there with their two children. They had come to Winnipeg from Ireland the previous year. They had rented various apartments and stayed in boarding homes of their own. And finally, they had saved up the money over the course of a year to purchase this home in May of 1927. So they've only been in this home for a month. And they've decided that in order to help pay the mortgage, they're going to advertise a room for rent. So 11 o'clock in the morning rolls around. Emily opens the door and there stands Earl. Earl says that he doesn't have any money, but that he could do some repair work around their new home in lieu of rent. Over the course of a little bit of time, Multiple neighbors see Earl at this house. They see him fixing the screen door, the, the front screen door of the Patterson's house, but they aren't paying that much attention to him. Having disarmed Emily with any of the suspicions she might have had, because he's such a helpful young man, he comes into the kitchen and he catches her when her back is turned while she's doing things in the kitchen. He strikes her across the head with a hammer that he had been using to repair the screen door, which stuns her. Then he tries to strangle her, but she manages to pull multiple pieces of his hair out. So he does the exact same thing that he does with everyone else. He strangles her with a cord. He rapes her corpse. And then he puts her nude body under a bed along with the clothing that he had been wearing that he had gotten from Jacob Garber's store over on Main Street. Then he heads over to the closet. He pulls out a suit and a shirt and shoes that belong to Mr. Patterson, and he finds $70 and $10 bills hidden in a suitcase. The suit doesn't fit him that great, but he puts it back on, he walks back down the main street, across the street from Jacob Garber's store is a secondhand store run by Sam Waldman. And he goes in, trades this suit that doesn't fit him that well for a different suit at Sam Waldman's store. Then he walks next door to the central barbershop. He gets a shave, he gets a haircut, and he gets a massage. While he's having his haircut, the owner, a guy named Nicholas Tabor, notices that there is dried blood 
in Earl's hair, and there are scrapes along his scalp where his hair has been pulled back. So Tabor asks him about this. He says, how did, how did this happen? Earl says, don't worry about it. He gets mad. He tells the barber not to touch him, and he hightails it out of there. He walks along Portage Avenue and catches a streetcar, and he heads into Headingley. From Headingley, Earl gets, he hitchhikes to Portage of the Prairie with a man named Hugh Elder, and then he goes on to Regina, Saskatchewan. There, he rents a room from a woman named Mary Rowe. He tells her his name is Harry Harcourt. So in Winnipeg, Emily's body is now found, and Lola's body is discovered and immediately reported to the police. Winnipeg has a slightly different response than some of the smaller places that he's been more recently. And his spree catches their attention, but more importantly, their ire. Every available detective is pulled in Winnipeg, and Chief of Detective George Smith has shown them these various uh, flyers and circulars that have come by mail, sort of describing what's happened in Oregon, what's happened in Missouri, what's happened in Philadelphia, and most importantly, what happened in California. He puts together what would be today a press release. And that press release includes a list of all these victims and all the descriptions of the gorilla strangler, the dark man, all of these different ways that people remembered Earl Nelson. Now, Earl Nelson, renting his room that night at the Rose residence, doesn't realize what's happening. He wakes up on Monday morning, which would be June the 13th of 1927. He reads the local newspaper and then immediately goes to get rid of his clothing after he reads a fairly accurate description of himself and his current state and the clothing that he had purchased at Waldman's in Winnipeg. He bails on this room. He goes over to a department store and using the money he had stolen from the Patterson's house, he purchases a pair of blue coveralls, a khaki shirt, and a hat. Then he goes over to Royal Second Hand Store and he sells the remainder of his clothing that he had taken in Winnipeg and, and sort of horse traded for. The clerk notices that some of the clothing has labels on it indicating it came from Winnipeg, including like price tags. He realizes that Earl's description lines up with the newspaper article from that morning. And as Earl is deciding to leave, this guy calls the cops. Now, he catches a ride with a man named Isidore Silverman, who's a scrap metal dealer. And Isidore takes him as far as uh, Beausivane in Manitoba. Isidore's occupation was for him to go through all these little small towns and hit all these farms off of the main road. And this happens to work in Earl's favor because this guy's going and picking up different scrap metals that he's like just packaging up as he goes. He, so Silverman accidentally helps Earl get away. Once he gets into the new town in Manitoba, Earl takes a couple of short car rides, hitchhiking to make his way south to a small town called Wakapa, 
Now, Wakapa is just five miles from the U.S. border. Shortly before 6 p.m. on the 13th, Earl enters the general store of a man named Leslie Morgan. He purchases some cheese and he purchases a drink. Leslie Morgan gets a bad feeling about Earl, and Earl is acting suspicious at this point. So he sneaks away and calls into the Manitoba Provincial Police Detachment in Killarney. And he alerts the only person who's on duty that this guy is in his store. So a constable there named W.A. Gray, he immediately gets in his police car and he drives to Wacopa. And he is able to arrest Earl as Earl is walking the last two miles from where he was in Wacopa to the United States border. He doesn't even struggle with Constable Gray. And Constable Gray takes Earl back to Killarney and puts him in the cell block there. I mean, this town barely even had a jail. So that's a pretty fitting sort of capture for him, I would say. Yes. I just realized, like, the place and time this is. Like, Jekyll and Hyde would have come out in the late 1800s, like 1870 or so. I'm going to get that date wrong. But so this guy, this is... 50 years later. Maybe it's not as close in time as I was thinking about. Yeah, because he's, uh, like, just, what, in his 20s or 30s? Yeah, so Earl at this time, and he's going to be 30 years old. So he was born in May of 1897. He had just turned 30. Yeah, okay. So that's the end of Earl's spree. Uh, Now, what happens here is... There was a number of things that he did that sort of get him caught um, um, beyond what I was just saying. Like one of the things that he did was he sold uh, Emily Patterson's wedding ring and that was able to track him. The The Nicholas Tabor situation, uh, that's the barber who cut his hair and noticed the, blight, the dried blood. Uh, that was kind of leading to him being caught. But I will say that they don't waste a lot of time with Earl in Canada. And I didn't know this about Canada. Have you seen sort of how everything goes down with him there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so the time that uh, W.A. Gray arrests him, Earl Nelson is wanted in six U.S. cities. And he ends up being held in a Manitoba court for the murders of Lola Cowan and Emily Patterson. They didn't know how to charge him for everything. And I don't know what this means. So I was going to ask you about it. He gets charged for their murders. And then he gets charged with two counts of attempted molestation and a count of burglary. So murder and molestation applies to both Lola and Emily. Right. The, the burglary is what he does at the Patterson home with Emily. So right. is, it, is it attempted molestation because... They're dead? Well, they don't have any, uh, they must not have had any corroboration. So they felt like they could, they could prove the attempted part as opposed to like the, the crime itself. Gotcha. Earl's trial is scheduled to begin on June 27th of 1927. It ends up being postponed at the request of his attorney. And instead it starts later. It starts on November the 1st. And this is in the, the main Winnipeg court. 
But the case was prosecuted by a man named R.B. Graham, and it was overseen by Justice Andrew Dysart. His attorney was named James Stitt. Now, they bring in a bunch of witnesses. And one of those witnesses, if you remember from not last episode, but the episode before, is Nelson's, is Earl Nelson's wife, Mary Martin. She was the older woman that he married and then separated from very quickly. She described him as being absolutely insane. Which is actually sort of a turnabout face based on what she had said uh, when he initially faced the charges against the little girl whose brother intervened. Yeah. But not that much time had passed, huh? No. It's so wild to me that all of this... So by the time we're at trial, basically we're at trial in the holidays of 1927, and his spree really begins February of 1926. So this next part was a little shocking to me, but we'll, I'm going to go with it. I will say they called 78 witnesses total, and they basically they track Earl through that story that I just told you. They're able to track him coming into Canada, and they're able to link him to various crimes that we've just been talking about and all of his stolen property. The closing statements in Earl's trial take place on November the 5th, 1927. So the trial begins on November the 1st. They put 78 people on the stand, give or take, and it closes out on November the 5th. The jury deliberates for 40 minutes, and they find Earl guilty of murder. And that's for Lola's murder, and that is for Emily Patterson's murder. Earl tells everyone he's innocent and different relatives, including Lola's family members come to see him and Earl's the whole time that they're there. He tells them that he is innocent and Mary McConnell's family comes up from Philadelphia and he tells them that he is innocent. He gets a mandatory death sentence. Now in late December, 1927, the attorney, James Stead, he submits a 30-page document to the Minister of Justice at the time, Ernest LaPointe. It's basically serving as what would be a clemency petition today. And the idea is he's trying to do something to mitigate the death sentence. And the cornerstone for this clemency petition is that Earl Nelson is insane. The way that evidence in the trial of his personal history had been presented to the jury was unfair and that the jury having been exposed to his crimes in the press so recently, because all of this is unfolding basically between June and November, that it's unfair. Now he gets 20 affidavits from people who had known Earl who swore that they knew his character and his mentality and that they believed that for a very long period of time, Earl had been of unsound mind. They're basically saying he was not all there, which is, that was kind of your point anyways with this, right? Anybody that would do something like this is not all there, yes. Yeah, so they have all these witnesses that put all of this together. And this includes a woman named L.J. Casey. And she had actually, between the time Earl is let out of the institution, before the murder spree begins in February of uh, 1926, 
she had employed him. And one of the quotes that is in multiple sources here, but most prominently in Harold Schechter's book, was that she would hear him laughing and talking to himself all the time. She said, one day, while I happened to be nearby, he sat right, out, right outside in the pouring rain, looking at the sky with no coat on until he was soaked through, laughing all the while. So in spite of all these affidavits, the appeal for clemency is denied, and they schedule Earl's execution for the second Friday of January in 1928. So this is less than two years since the murder spree began. And Earl is executed by hanging at 7.30 a.m. on January 13th of 1928 at the Vaughn Street Jail. His final words were, I forgive those who have wronged me. One of the jail guards is noted, and I think this pops on the Wikipedia page. It's in a couple of different places. It's uh, most notably in The Laughing Gorilla and in Harold Schechter's book. It uh, The jail guard who was basically in charge of Earl while a trial was going on said that Earl had become particularly obsessed with a, a, a Bible passage. And that Bible passage was in the book of book of Proverbs, and it read, My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. This guy died taking absolutely zero responsibility for anything he had ever done. Right. Well, there was a rumor that um, he had made a statement at the time of his arrest to the press that he it, it was something to the effect of um, I do my lady killing on Saturday. Yeah. And so it was like one of those like sort of smirky comments. But then he re, uh, he retracted it. And I, I'm not sure exactly how uh, valid that was. But this is actually a really good example of something I've I'm constantly trying to sort of get out there. So Earl Nelson was like 100% mentally off. Is okay. that okay to say? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. He's, he's, he's mentally ill. Absolutely, he is. Anybody that committed these crimes would be 100% mentally off. And the you know, what we would consider now to be like this clemency petition, it was properly denied. And that's because the amount that Earl was off here, it doesn't add up to him not being put to death for these murders. The reason I say that is, let's say, for example, I know this is bad, but it, it happens to show my point with the young lady that was killed that was 14 that was selling flowers. With Lola, yeah. And Lola, either Cowan or Gowan, I, I'm not sure either. I, I've seen it. I believe it's Cowan, but either way, Lola, you know, if you had found the perpetrator sitting in the middle of the bed with her body stuffed underneath it as if, you know, nothing was wrong... That's a situation where you're going to have to take the competency into consideration, right? I would agree, yeah. Okay. When you have a situation with a 
person who, you know, they are clearly having a mental health crisis or, you know, enduring a mental health crisis for, you know, a, a while, it that doesn't speak to competency at all. If you've made efforts to cover up what you've done, if you've moved on from a situation where you killed someone, like those are things that, you know, they they scream like, I know I've done something wrong, right? Yeah. There are very, very, very few people, which I believe are, now this was in Canada, but, and they went ahead and killed him. Uh, They went ahead and carried out his death sentence, right? Yeah, real quick. So from the time in November, November 5th, I believe, uh, the jury deliberated 40 minutes after the close of the trial, and they came back guilty on the murder charges. And then I believe you said January, so January 13th of 1928. So, you know, we're talking about a very short period of time here, November, uh, the beginning of November of 1927 until January 13th, 1928. Probably one of the fastest executions in history, right? Well, I've seen them where they find them guilty and execute them the next day. Right. And well, that and that goes with like space and time, right? Yes, absolutely. As, yeah. But here, you know, he was just found guilty of the two murders. That was it, right? Uh, that was enough, though. And there was no, he was not garnering any sympathy from anyone. Because his crimes were truly terrible. And at face value, it does look like uh, there was evidence linking him to certain things. This is not the kind of case I like to do because it's so kind of, to me, it just seems like sporadic. You know what I mean? Because it is Yeah, he's killing in sprees and it is difficult to put it all together. Well, I was going to say like, not just the killings being sporadic, but like, you know, I'm going off of what somebody else is saying, basically, as opposed to like actual, you know, factual documents, right? Yeah. And it's easy to make connections to things. And that's usually where I find gaps is somebody's interpreted something. If you look just strictly at the data, there are some, uh, like I said earlier, there are some pretty stark outliers. They seem to be sort of reconciled through other evidence, right? Right. Uh, Like, for example, um, you know, uh, well, I would, yeah, Lola is the biggest outlier as far as the age goes, right? Because she's only 14. But But also the approach. Well, right. Well, right. And so she's 14 and, like, she came to him, right? Right. Which is different than everybody else. However, she's found under the bed that he rented, Right. Correct. Yeah. And so see that evidence throws the fact that she was 14 and came to him. It, it doesn't matter that she was 14 and came to him. He slept in that bed according to the witnesses. Right. Correct. You see. And so, you know, what was happening here? Well, I think this guy overall, while it does seem that he has sort of a plan and has it together, I feel like he really was, um, he participated in crimes of opportunity more than anything else. I would agree with you. I think, I think that some of the things you said along the way here are more accurate than some of what I've seen and the analysis of him. And that would be the things that you've described in terms of trying to parse why this landlord from this boarding house 
but not this manager from this rental house. You know, why, like, why are the differences there? I think ultimately it was just whatever struck him and whatever he felt like he could get away with in that moment. That doesn't necessarily mean he could. And certainly at the end he's decompensating, but I think that you're right that most of this is pretty random. Right. And random to the extent that he could find the circumstances he needed to do the crime he wanted to do, which was ultimately violently attacking and killing a woman and then uh, raping her body. Correct. He was, so he was dealing with necrophilia in a time that necrophilia in terms of legality would not have been as recognized or understood in the United States or Canada. Or acknowledged. Or acknowledged as we see by these charges. I do, I want to say really quickly while we're like here, um, I've talked about the Harold Schechter book. I just wanted like, that's been a source for all of this. The name of the book, this is from the nineties and it's called Bestial, the Savage Trail of a True American Monster. Then we also had uh, a second book that was in here and uh, that book was Dirk Cameron Gibson. You can get the Schechter book really easily. The Dirk Cameron Gibson book was not as in print. It's from around 2006. Uh, I jotted down the name. It's Serial Murder and Media Circuses, which I thought you would appreciate. Well, right. Um, and so part of the it, – it's really hard to sort of sum this up without – making a statement that feels like it's like diametrically opposed to what I'm saying uh, because he's so unheard of, right? Correct. But he is, he's touted in some regards as I I wanted to find the quote um, as the first, like um, serial sex murderer. Yeah. Like the first serial sex murderer. And they talk about how he was, his crimes uh, and the cases of his purported victims were inundated with uh, media coverage, right? Yeah, that, that's the that's the true statement in this. He's the first serial killer that goes viral. <laughs> yeah, as viral as you could go in the 20s, right? Yeah. At the 1920s. And it's really interesting because um, he's, I would say... Uh, largely unheard of at this point. Yeah, he's completely unheard of. Um, It's weird. Like, I noticed something when I was going through, like, I pulled up the wiki. I actually made some adjustments to the wiki here on him just for clarity. But I realized that one of the sources was a 19, an August 1927 newspaper called The Gleaner, from Kenston, Jamaica. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it it was an article about a couple of uh, uh, different things that had gone on. But I wanted to point out, and it, mainly Schechter does this. So I'm saying that, because uh, not all of these people that have talked about him, uh, Robert Graysmith, uh, Derek Gibson, um, there's a couple others that like I didn't use as much, but uh, Louis Charles uh, Deathweight had a entry on him. I just wanted to say that if if you go looking for this, you'll notice that some people attach seven more names 
And I do, I guess I do want to talk about them for a second. Is that a, like, did you see that there are like, there are some more names attached to him or no? No, I did. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and, and you can find this in all of these sources. Uh, and these, some of these are really good reads, by the way. Some of them are a little drudgier and they're actually about a, a lot more stuff than just Earl Nelson, which is one of the reasons I think he's been forgotten is he sort of gets lumped in as a starting point for somebody to write a book that nobody's ever written. But these seven women explain some things for me if they happen to be him. But I want to caution that, like, it's just one of those things. I don't want to, like, oddest tool this guy and just and, and lump a bunch of cases on him because – you know, of, of you what can. happened. Right. Well, um, but I also want to, and so on top of your disclaimer, I would like to say he was found guilty of the murders of two, uh, of a young, a uh, 14 year old girl and a woman in Winnipeg. Right. Yeah. 14 year old and a 27 year old. Right. And that's, that's, what he's found, that's what he's executed for. Right. And so the rest of these are unadjudicated. Correct. All of the other victims that I had mentioned are unadjudicated. And then, these seven are victims are—they're. This is the. This is speculation. Have you ever? Um, have you seen why? Uh, which uh, part? The set. Have you seen anything to um, indicate why these seven are just speculation? Well, we could talk about that. I don't have a direct answer, um, but I, I was I, just I, curious. I think as I go along and describe each one, I think I can give you like a reason that something was wrong with it. So the first one on the list is a 62 year old woman named Elizabeth Jones in San Francisco, California on August the 23rd of 1925. She is found strangled in her home after being after having been seen talking to a man interested in purchasing her property. Now, this would have been right after Earl was discharged from the Napa State Hospital at the time of Jones's murder. And it's a full, you know, six months ahead of when the actual murder spree begins that we know of. I suspect that this is only speculative. And this is me all speculating about speculation, which is weird. I don't know that she was sexually assaulted. So Elizabeth Jones is, and she's strangled with her own necklace. So that's a little different. It's kind of a flimsy garrote and I'm not a hundred percent sure that there was any necrophilia involved. Right. And so in this particular situation, if, if she were to be his victim, she would be the very first one. Yeah, she would be the the first. She would be the first one after he gets out of Napa, and she suspected if it, if this is possibly him, and she fits in a lot of ways. She would be the first victim overall that was a murder, and Correct. and that could be that like he either they didn't check or he bailed on the idea of the necrophilia for some reason. I think that I'm I'm surprised even now that the necrophilia is mentioned at all, and so uh, it gets the, left out of a lot of cases. The lack of that is not a deterrent to me. Um, I would have to do a bigger, uh, a larger look at some other things that I'm not sure I could actually find numbers on to really see what I thought there. But this is basically just it's like 
a spree six months earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. This is another spree. Is what uh, most of this is like. Um, what we're talking about is it's it could be the ramp up. It, this absolutely could be him experimenting with murder and trying to figure out like what he's doing. And you'll notice that some of these mo's match pretty carefully. Well, and I just want to like sort of reiterate here and. So this whole story is confusing anyway, and then it's sort of backwards because you go through all these connected victims, right? Even though they're not adjudicated, they've been uh, satisfactorily connected by somebody's standard. I don't even know whose standard. Then you've got these like sort of other possible victims category, which uh, comes out and we're talking about it at the end, even though it would in theory be before all these other Uh, cases that we just talked about, right? Correct. Okay. So he went to uh, the facility that he had just gotten out of before um, the very first murder we were talking about. He went there based on him posing as a plumber and... He attempted to molest a 12-year-old. Is that is that where you're yes, headed with this? that's yeah. what I'm getting. I, I want to – so I'm trying to put it in – because this is such a confusing case, uh, case to me from Earl's perspective, right? He go he gets in trouble for trying to attack a 12-year-old girl. He doesn't actually attack her, but he's charged with attempting to, and he's sent away, right? So he's getting out of the facility he was sent to because of that – failed attempt on a little girl. Correct. Okay. I think people take that and they go, I think that's how they come full circle with Lola, by the way. So he starts with a 12 year old girl, ends with a 14 year old girl, basically. And I know Emily Patterson is in the same time period. Um, But, but I want to run through these other suspected women here. So Elizabeth Jones that I just mentioned, she would have been after he gets out of the state hospital for his rehabilitative mental health stay. They, they deemed him no longer a danger. Elizabeth Jones would have happened shortly after that. So that's how she ends up on the list of possible victims. She's a strangulation with the sale of a property. There's a couple of things that line up there. Now, a month later, September 25th of 1925, 45-year-old Daisy Anderson, which is also in, she's also in San Francisco, California. She is strangled while showing a room in her boarding house that she had for rent. Her body is found nude inside her house. I think it's the next day she's found. Then uh, just a couple of days later, October 1st, 1925, we have Elma Wells. She's 32 in San Francisco, California. Her body is discovered nude and jammed into the closet of a vacant apartment in a building that she was the manager of. November the 7th, 1925, we have Mary Murray. And this gets a little murky for me because we're jumping from October in San Francisco. Mary Murray's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I don't have an age on her. Um, She's in Schechter's book. She's only briefly mentioned as a possible victim. She is found strangled in uh, she is strangled in her kitchen. Evidence of a struggle is found, and she is deceased in an upstairs bedroom. And if she is his victim, this is the first one that there's documentable evidence that her body had been defiled after death. Right, and I just want to point out the notes on that. Uh, they, if you 
consider the difference of the fact that, like you said, it's in Philadelphia. Um, So you're jumping from San Francisco, California in October to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, November um, 7th. The recognition, acknowledgement, whatever you want to call it, of the necrophilia, um, it could be uh, space. it could be location oriented. Jurisdictional, yeah, I would agree with that. The like the press in Philadelphia were willing to say it, and whoever was talking about it in San Francisco, they didn't want to say it, or they didn't know it, or whatever, right? Right. They could have even been doing it out of deference to the victims' families. Right. It, it was a. It's still a taboo uh, subject, but so again, I wouldn't discount any non-mention of it as. A, a factor to to rule somebody out. I, and I totally agree with that. I'm just mentioning it from like the materials that have been made available. So November 7th is Mary Murray. And then we jump to November 11th, 1925. And sticking with this pattern, we have Lena Wiener. She is found deceased in a bedroom by her husband. She has been sexually assaulted post-mortem. And clothing articles from her husband's wardrobe are missing. And that's all we have for her. Now, an open date in November 1925, we have Ola McCoy. She's also in Philadelphia. She gets strangled in the front parlor of her home, and she's found deceased in an upstairs bedroom. She had a postmortem sexual assault. So these three Philadelphia cases all have a postmortem sexual assault. And that could be, like you said, Philadelphia is willing to report on it. California maybe doesn't. I, uh, I feel like that's a strong component of uh, the lack thereof in some cases. Yeah. So with, with Ola McCoy, she's right down the street from uh, Mary Murray. She's just a couple blocks away. All of these are actually relatively close if you look at them. And then we have – so so – those victims, those six women, if they're his victims, they're actually the first spree. And that starts in August and ends in November, which also fits correlates. his. Yeah, it correlates to, to, to his pattern here. But we can document him ahead of Elizabeth Jones in August 1925 as having been locked away in Napa. So it's safe to say if these happen to be his, then there's probably not anybody else there that's been left off of this list. I don't have a thorough enough record to go through for homicides in 1925 in San Francisco to where I can say for sure missing women or, or murdered women are or are not attached with him. I don't think this is going to be the kind of killer where I have to go looking through a bunch of missing persons cases because he pretty much just leaves the body somewhere nearby and he only stashes them in a way that it allows him a clean getaway. That's correct. And uh, all of his victims are going to have this setup where he is not known to them. He's not identifiable by anybody in their life. It's it's a very strange, strange um, sort of scenario for us, at least for us today. It's very strange. But also, like, maybe that's why everybody stopped talking about it, because it's like a terrible, it would be a terrible guide for somebody looking for information on what to do, like, if you're going to be this person, right? Yeah, like, like everything, you're right. Like, and that's funny, because I thought about that when I was reading up on him. The whole idea behind what's happened here would really be like a, like a how to be a serial sadist, Lust killer. 
And I would want to get point away out, with it. Well, I would want to point out. So yes, you're right. Um, he he got to endure sort of this period of time. However, uh, justice, at least at the end, was thorough and quick. Okay? Yeah, it was. And so he didn't get away with it forever. I don't necessarily think that he was in this for a long-term kind of, you know, thing that he was trying to do here. Uh, It was a lot to think that he would be continuing this forever and ever, right? He didn't pace himself at all. And even like sort of in uh, the the late 1920s, like he did so many things so quickly that like it, to me, the other possible victims, now we are looking back at it from almost 100 years later, but I would say that the statistical odds of the six victims that we mentioned that occurred in what would have been a, you know, a, a primary spree of this guy if they are his victims, the statistical odds of them not being his victims are very, very low based yeah. on all the information we have kind of notating that there could have been like a geographical uh, sort of reason why details of the crime, such as the necrophilia might've been left out to the media. Right. The situation of like what the victim was doing at the time, how she ended up being found. Right. And then like the, the articles of clothing missing, uh, from one of the the woman's husband's bureau. Those weren't common types of crimes that were occurring. Not altogether like that. The, like that stuff happening the way that it was happening, like he had a pretty clear pattern that even though he changed up his pattern, he was still trying to get to the same end with a different means. And that it was the it was the means that were odd. Well, right. And I think that he did evolve as uh, time went by and he did move around quite a bit. I would say that I feel like these other possible victims, there's a very high likelihood. And th- I think there's one more that you're going to talk about. But it's Yeah. So this one. So this one's a little strange because there's not a lot of information on her. She comes up with Harold Schechter's book. She's mentioned in, of all things, an Australian newspaper the following year. But this takes place in August uh, August 18th of 1926. So this is that the first six names of victims that we just mentioned, they take place a whole year prior. And this is sort of in the middle of his spree. This is the Stockton, California murder of a woman who she's 50 years old. Her name is Isabel Galagos. And it was it, it was believed to be wrapped up. There was a guy named John uh, Silikoff. Silikoff. He was a Russian immigrant, right? His name was John Livkoff. S-L-I-V-K-O-F-F. Yeah. So she gets mentioned as having been murdered by uh, John Slivkov, who is a Russian immigrant. But even though he gets arrested, witnesses who had seen Isabel's killer, they failed to pick John out of a lineup. So for some reason, with no other information sitting in front of me, and that's why she's sort of at the very end, she gets attached. I think she's on the wiki page. Is that where she's at? 
She's on the wiki page in the other possible victims category. I just want to point out, so I don't know anything about her particular uh, murder. Correct. Because it is summed up uh, by saying that, like, there was a suspect that couldn't be identified. However, I would like to point out, um, again, that, and this is sort of different, so... We're looking at a situation where on August 16th, 1926, in Oakland, California, Mary C. Nisbet uh, was strangled and raped in her apartment building. Her husband uh, was initially questioned by police, but cleared of suspicion. And she's on a, she's one of the connected victims to Earl Nelson, right? And right. again, that's August 16th, 1926, in Oakland, California. And 75 miles away... On August 18th, so two days later, 75 miles away, right? Yeah. You've got another situation where you've got Isabel in Stockton, California. And again, I don't have the information about her murder right in front of me, but if there's... There, there would be, you know, did she, was she a boarding house person? Did she Was she found nude and stuffed somewhere? Yeah. Um, was her jewelry missing? The... It's interesting uh, that there was, in both of those cases that were 75 miles away from each other within two days, uh, there was a, sus- a suspect, right? Yeah. Uh, one was the husband and one was this immigrant, and I don't know what the connection there is. I, I, like I said, this is, you know, she's the very last other possible victim. We are, we were, uh, night, what is it, 97 years out, almost 100 years out, and this case, you know, is still not solved, right? Right. Um, it's never going to be solved, clearly. Um, but I would say that the odds are, and I and I hate uh, piling on cases. I hate. I will. I refuse to do it to people uh, to serial killers just to close out cases. I think that's ridiculous. I feel like that's how you know we have oddest tool today, right? And a lot of cases that get attached to him that aren't real. Well, Otis Tool and Henry Lee Lucas are not murderers, much, much less serial killers. Okay. Yeah. And it drives me bananas. I can't even believe it because it comes up so much and it's just, oh, it, it drives me crazy. So I, I'm not, so, I say all that just to say I'm not one to pile on cases. Okay. Right. <laughs> However, I would say that every single one of the other possible victims we just mentioned, the, the odds of them not being this guy's victims, like it, it, it's very small that they wouldn't be his victim. However, I also would add that there could always be a situation where some of these victims are related to one another, but not necessarily to him. I don't know enough about this time and place and there's not enough evidence left to examine to really attribute it to him like in a way where I'm comfortable saying absolutely. However, the work on the case seems solid from what is presented, right? Yeah. Well, so uh, what's weird about her is she's single source, which a lot of times you guys don't hear me mention that. Um, but I will read to you what the source says about Isabel uh, uh, Galagos. It says that, and this is uh, Harold Schechter. This is from Bestial. I clipped this out when, when we were looking at this, and I was debating if I was even going to include her. You mentioned her, so I'm going to put this out here. It's in his book, and I can't source this anywhere else. 
It says that Thursday, August 19th, just three days after Mary Nisbet's murder, another landlady was strangled. This time, the killing took place in Stockton. The victim was Isabel Gallegos, 76-year-old widow who rented rooms in her weather-beaten home not far from the railroad tracks. She was found by a former tenant named C.C. Parlett, who had dropped by the house to pick up his mail. As soon as Parlett stepped inside, he saw that something was wrong. The place had been turned upside down, closets had been ransacked, bureaus emptied, clothes and household objects scattered all over the floors. He found Miss Gallegos crumpled in the bedroom, face blue, eyes bulging, a cotton pillowcase twisted tightly around her neck. The immediate assumption shared by the police, the press, and the public was that the murder was the work of the dark strangler, who had been lured by a room-to-let sign in the victim's parlor window. That same afternoon, a Stockton landlady named Sadie Powers reported another attack to the police. According to Mrs. Powers, who managed an apartment building at 100 Union Street, a dark-complexioned stranger with bushy eyebrows had come to the front door inquiring about the vacancy sign posted on the front of the building. As soon as they were alone in the flat, the man had grabbed her by the arms, then attempted to wrap his hands around her throat. Mrs. Powers, however, put up such fierce resistance that the assailant, whom she described as approximately 25 years old, 5 feet 7 inches tall, weighing 150 pounds, fled. Even as police followed up on this lead, however, they were beginning to wonder whether Isabel Gallegos had, in fact, been the victim of the strangler, since the state of the crime scene suggested robbery, not rape murder, as the main motivation. Mrs. Gallegos's daughter reinforced this theory when she revealed that her mother had a local, totally erroneous reputation as a woman of wealth, the type of eccentric old lady who stuffs wads of cash inside her mattress. When the autopsy revealed that Mrs. Gallegos had not been subjected to a post-mortem sexual assault, Police Chief C.W. Potter and other members of the Stockton Police Force were even less inclined to attribute her death to the strangler. And I can agree with that, like, from the perspective of where they were at that point in time, right? Yeah, yeah. But looking back on it now, I would have to say that, well, unless they just completely stopped working the case, which is possible, um, I would have to say that it's, it, it even though they didn't find evidence of a sexual assault after death. The odds are still in the favor that this is his victim. I would say just sort of based on my experience in researching and I could be wrong. I could, but you know, I have her age as 50 and I think you said she was 76. Yeah. I I'm going by. That stuff drives me crazy. Cause um, I don't, I have no idea. So, and her name is spelled differently. I'm, I'm just, so I made a list that was sort of all encompassing here. So I know that she is listed as 50 and she is listed as 76. I don't know where that comes from. I can only tell you that that it, it appears that B seal has her as 76, according to what I just read, which okay. Mainly, I'm reading that so you can kind of see the circumstances surrounding it. Sure. And honestly, I mean, this was this case was a lot. Talking about from the perspective of Earl Nelson, the, you know, first serial uh, necrophile that was, like, covered in what was mainstream media at the time, right? Yeah. And, you know, he even made the radio, which the radio was a new form of media at the time. 
And there were reports about him on the radio, which was a new uh, avenue at that point, as far as like talking right. about this type of thing, right? Which is yeah. interesting because we've gone full circle because we essentially are on sort of like a radio. Yeah, right? it is kind of like that, yeah. It's interesting. It so So from the perspective of the killer, and then, of course, from the perspective of the 22 plus 7, which would be 29 victims, right? All of these women were murdered in atrocious, terrible ways. And, you know, they stand sort of apart because of the ways that they were murdered. And the if there had been an additional dude doing this, like, they would have received the same kind of coverage, right? Yeah, then it becomes a bit of a numbers game for me. Like, what's the likelihood of the jurisdiction and the MO and all of this lining up? Right. And to me, like, there's just not going to be another guy that's completely unheard of at like a hundred years later because of the. Uh, yeah, now, I, I agree with you. I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not the, saying that there couldn't be like a one off in here somewhere. Right. But like, yeah, like a copycat or every time I've sat or like, a you know, like a husband, like trying to that, say. That's it what was, I, yeah, 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 that's what I mean. Yeah. And so, you know. I'm not saying that there couldn't be a one-off stuck in here, but every single situation where I've said to myself, oh, well, that doesn't make sense because of this or that or the other. Most of the time, honestly, it's because it seems like just odd, right? Uh, There's another case that sort of backs it up that like there wouldn't be that same different perpetrator involved. And it, swings all the way back around to being Nelson, right? Correct. And so, you know, I get, and, and I can't, I'm relying on knowledge that I, you know, I'm skeptical of. So, you know, with and the sources all, that are, I mean, that's what I, I mean, because there's it's a not, lot of historical work that went into this guy. So I feel like I, and like I said, as I went along, some of the public, forums with this and the editable things i actually added some edits to things trying to clear up some but what i was doing was exactly what you just described multiple sources would state a name and an age and if i could confirm that name and that age and there were significant misspellings or significant differences in the ages then i would make an edit because you can do that on wikipedia correct you can but i didn't go so far like if it was still conflicted source after the fact i didn't mess with it because i cannot tell who's right and i don't have the the original document in fact she's really like now that i look at the wikipedia i'm gonna go make two edits but but i don't know where the bad information came from because it's sourced is what i just read to you which is that, would be wrong, right? Yeah, that's the age and the name. And like, you know, I the Graysmith book isn't sourced for that. And she doesn't really come up anywhere else in terms of place or time for any other killers or any other situations. It's really more about uh, John Slickoff or uh, Slipkoff or whatever his name is. Right. Um, and I don't know, again, uh, you know, I don't know why the distinction is made between the speculated links. Uh, to me, they have just as much of a link as the other speculated cases, honestly. 
Yeah. I don't have a lot more on this right now. I mean, he, he's going to come up uh, one more time, but it's not in terms of uh, Earl himself. It's kind of moving into uh, uh, a new story. Um, but I will say, I found the quote I think you were looking for, and it is in Gray Smith's book, The Laughing Gorilla. And that is when Constable Gray came upon uh, Earl walking towards the border. Uh, he pulled him, basically pulled him over, I guess is what you would say. And he said, we're looking for a man who's responsible for the death of 26 women. And that's what Gray said to the guy. And he said, a mass murderer? I only do my lady killing on Saturday nights. Right. He said, you better ride back to me, back with me to Killarney so we can check your story. And Nelson responded, fair enough. You fellows have to play it safe when there's a killer on the loose. And Gray actually, according to the quote, thought that there's no way it can be this guy. He's way too laid back to be the person I'm looking for. Right. And uh, they, he, uh, that was him using a different name, right? Yep. Right. And so uh, he definitely had, he, he had some definite uh, personality issues. Yeah. There's a lot going on with this guy. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. 
whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. 
late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. 
Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access you can also use the code true crime access at checkout that's it that's all you have to do and that's 15 percent off your order using the promo code true crime xs